Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about the origin and uh, machinations of creation and creativity. I am one of your hosts, Celine Sims. I am ridiculous, and I am joined, as always, by the wonderful Kay Tempest Bradford, who is equally ridiculous. You should see the position that I'm in right now for this recording. Ridiculous. The things we do for podcasting. All right. So welcome to another show. We're up to episode six now. Can you believe it? I know. Isn't it amazing? Six episodes. It's really cool. I'm really proud of what we're doing so far. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing where we go because I already I know I'm super biased, but I... I love the show. I think that I think that it is a really, really good podcast. So I'm I'm really excited for the future. And yeah, it's like if we didn't like it, we wouldn't be doing this. We'd be like, this you know is what? This isn't true. even fun. Get out. We would have, yeah, we would have had two episodes and been you know like fighting or whatever. Would have been right. sad, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Well, this week's guest is uh, a friend of mine and a newly published author, Dan Morin. And uh, as ever, I will have him introduce himself right now. I'm Dan Morin. I am a technology journalist and podcaster and more recently a sci-fi novelist. I used to work for Macworld for many years. I was a senior editor when I left there in 2014. Um, before that, had sort of worked my way up from the ranks. Started as a blogger in a Mac user in 2006. So I'd been covering tech stuff for about a decade before I made the jump into writing, uh, or, or I should say fiction writing. I was always doing writing. Um, but that has been a long-term goal of mine since I was a little kid. And I've been working on novels for a very long time and was lucky enough to get one published uh, this year, which came out in May. It is called The Caledonian Gambit, and it is my, it's my first published novel. So I think it took Dan eight years to, to get this novel out. So, I mean, congratulations, Dan. That's awesome. Right. That's typical, though. I mean, things. It, publishing, slow process. Writing, very. slow process. Uh, actually, it was very interesting when I was listening to this interview prior to this. Uh, it struck me how similar Dan and I are because we both protect journalists and we both also write speculative fiction and we're both podcasters and we both know a lot of the same people. Like, we'll you know get more into this later, but there are <laughs> some people that he mentions. I'm like, you mean my friend, Mike? <laughs> It's such a small world, but it is but, such a small world. It's, but I find it to be. There are a lot of people who are into technology journalism who are also just great big nerds. Um, and then because if you're a technology journalist, you're a writer. As Dan pointed out, just because he was writing nonfiction doesn't mean he wasn't a writer. And so you're a writer, and then that sometimes just very naturally sees you right into writing fiction based on some of the things that made you interested in or very nerdy about technology in the first place. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Um, There's an episode of The Incomparable where Dan talks really in depth about kind of his process and where he got the idea for this, uh, this novel or the genesis of it and that kind of thing. So I'll be sure to put that in the show notes because it's a really interesting show. It's just uh, Dan Morin and Jason Snell talking about uh, this whole process of stuff. So I'll, I'll put that in there. But yeah, I think it's super interesting. I think it's just nerdery. Like there's a certain type of personality that's attracted to being a a, a tech geek. And I feel like a lot of us are also very into science fiction, um, and fantasy. And, uh, I, I don't know what that is. I don't know why that is, but I think it's amazing. It's because we invented the future and we're also going to write about it when it's the present and make money. I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> especially the making money part. I'm on board with all of it. So I've been really excited. You can probably tell by my voice. Uh, Dan is uh, an amazing person, a good friend, and I've been super excited to kind of see 
see through this process. Um, you know, when when he got got the book deal through working through the cover and that kind of thing. Um, I haven't known him long enough to be like a beta reader or anything like that, but it was a lot of fun to see it. And so when it actually came in the mail and I held it in my hands, it was super squeeful. And I asked him about kind of living his dream because this is something that he's wanted to do for a really long time. So here's Dan talking about living his dream. You know, you you always have a vision in your head of one way that everything will feel when you finally achieved this thing. And I think for a lot of us, it's 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 we imagine it in a way that is not necessarily realistic, like, you know, especially something that 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 dates back to like when you're a kid, right? Like if you're a kid and you're imagining being an astronaut, that to you as like a kid probably means something very different than if you were to grow up and actually become an astronaut. And, and part of that is because the process that you go through along the way, uh, there's so much that happens, so many obstacles you overcome, so much training you have to do. All these experiences change the way that you think about your dream. So it becomes more real on the one hand, but it also becomes something that is, because it's more real, it becomes something that is less idealized. And so for me, it is it is truly a great culmination, but it definitely feels like that achievement pales in some way in comparison to the years of work that have gone into getting to this point. And so while you can kind of breathe a sigh of relief when you've actually achieved that thing, it also feels like, all right, well, that's great. That's like a box to check off. Like I didn't kick back necessarily and like, oh, I get to take the rest of my life off. Uh, you know, it was sort of I'm going to dive into the next thing. So it, it, it never ends. Is that what I'm getting? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it, it, it's also a thing where because not everything looks exactly the way that you thought it might look from the outside, sometimes it can be hard to figure out like when you have made what is like the, the accomplishment with all of the capital letters that are implied because like you write the book, that's an accomplishment but you've just, you've written a book and and maybe you've even like revised it and had other people look at it and give you suggestions. And you're like, this is ready. And so then there's this other step that some people take where they're like, I'm going to get an agent. And then you do that. And that's another accomplishment. And then the agent might be like, edit this. And then you do that. And then they send it to publishers and the publisher says, I will throw money at you to let me publish this book. And that's an accomplishment. And then there's a whole thing that's involved in that where there's like copy editors and there's edits from the editor at the publisher and ooh, proofreading that's a whole long process <laughs> and then after all that is done there's a book that is in your hands that is a finished thing that is on bookshelves that strangers strangers are buying and writing about and sometimes saying horrible things about because those strangers are wrong um, <laughs> and and so that that's an accomplishment like getting your first review from Publishers Weekly or the New York Times or, you know, some some other review outlet and the reviewer saying this book is amazing and these are the things that I loved about it and this is why everybody should buy it. That's an accomplishment. But then it's like, but what is that all that you set out to accomplish was just to like write one book that then got published that people read and liked if some people for some people actually, yes. Like there are some people who have like written, published like one, maybe two, three other books, and then they didn't do anything else. And they, it may not even be that they stopped writing. They probably kept writing, but they were just done. They were like, I accomplished that thing. And now I'm done. But if you want to say, have a career and make all your money writing these books, which some people are able to manage to do, not right away for most of them, but over time, it takes time. So then you got like, while you're in the middle of that process of making accomplishments on that first book, you got to be writing another book and maybe even another book concurrent with that. Mm-hmm. And then through all the steps in the process, there's another process going on with the next book and the next book and the next book. And so how do you know when you've like made the accomplishment? Like maybe it's when the, you know, the science fiction and fantasy writers of America hand you the grand master prize. They're like, you're a grand master now. We love you. And, but you're like 80. Right. <laughs> so you're like, well, I've reached the accomplishment. It took me 50 years, but I've reached it. And then hopefully you're around for another many, many years after that. Like nobody wants to hand you the grandmaster prize. And then you're just like, whoop, gotta go. No one wants that. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So I think a lot, I have been thinking a lot about feeling accomplished and, and what that takes for me. And I, I don't know what that looks like for me personally. I I have no idea. Like uh, Dan and I had this conversation where it's like, I do things and then it's like, okay, I did that thing. Now what? And it's never like, oh my God, I am so proud of, of this thing I accomplished. Let me, you know, put that on my resume and my website and all that stuff. It's just like, oh yeah, I did that, that thing. Now I do the next thing, you know? Yeah, I do. And I guess it, it's all going to depend on like what you necessarily feel like you want out of your accomplishments because it's going to be different for different people. I mean, I think about a lot about athletes, you know, if you're a marathon runner, then your accomplishment is, is that you run a, a lot of marathons and maybe you run a marathon in the Olympics and then you're like, whoop, did that. And then whoop, now I'm done. Some people ac- accomplish that kind of thing pretty early in their lives, relatively. Like I, I think about uh, that guy, that swimmer guy. Oh, his name just went out of my head. Michael Phelps? Michael Phelps. I think about Michael Phelps and how Michael Phelps was like, I'm going to do this. And he got to the Olympics and he won a whole bunch of medals. And he's like, whoa, now I'm done. And then a few years later, he's like, whoa, now I'm back. And you're like, mm-hmm, because <laughs> you reached that pinnacle, didn't you? And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> what else? Right. So with, with creative, with creative people, that's not always the same process because if, you know, hopefully you don't run out of ideas, you don't run out of new creative things to think about and try to bring into the world. And so it's not necessarily about, I'm going to reach that pinnacle and then be happy because I got there because you reached the pinnacle with a piece of art. What about the next piece of art? What about all the other pieces of art, the body of art? What do you want to say with your art? Is the only purpose of yourself to reach that pinnacle or were you trying to accomplish something inside of you that you may or may not feel that you've accomplished yet. So yeah, it just, it means different things to different people. And so I don't think there's any one way to feel accomplished. Yeah. Accomplishment is a myth, maybe, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I do think we have a tendency to minimize some of our accomplishments. And I'm going to call them accomplishments because I think they should be regarded as such. But I think we all have a tendency to minimize them. And some of it is because when we're on the outside, we look at these achievements, writing a book, working for a company, you know, any, any of these things and think, oh my God, that's so impressive and so huge. And it's not to say that it isn't, but when you actually get down to the nuts and bolts of doing that thing, and then you get to the other side of it, a certain amount of it is kind of like, it's not that it wasn't challenging, but you realize that the, the, for me anyways, it was the perseverance that was the hard part. It was just keeping going. And so I wonder sometimes about people who have done like tremendous physical achievements too, for example, like people have climbed Mount Everest or whatever. And they just look back and it's like, all I did was like walk up a mountain, right? Like I just put one foot against the other. Anyone could do it if you get enough time and, and training, et cetera. And it's like, it's, it just became about it is something that you could achieve with hard work. And so for me, I, I definitely have the experience of going into the store and seeing a book on the shelves and thinking, you know, it's great that this book was on a shelf, but I think about all the, you know, all the stuff I did to get there and was like, well, you know, anyone could have done it. I don't know that that's true that anyone could have done it, but anyone could have given enough uh, motivation to sit down and put one word against after another and then just sort of persevere over the process. Cause it's a, it's a tough process, but it's not, there's no voodoo to it. As I'm fond of saying, like there's no, there's no magic trick that makes it like, Oh yeah, this person is, uh, you know, innately qualified to do this thing. And this person is not. So no, Dan, not anyone can do it. I'm just gonna <laughs> correct you now. Well, I no. mean, <laughs> I mean, I know, I know but, what he's saying. I do know what he's right. saying, but. Well, there's, there's like anybody, well, okay, I'll say this. I do believe that anybody could just put one word after the other. <laughs> That's true. All, over and over again That's true. for long, for long bits and then put it together in a book that you may or may not find on a bookshelf because self-publishing exists. Um, and that's not even a slam on self-publishing as a whole. I'm just saying that it can be done regardless of anything else if you if you just want to be like, I put some words in front of one another and then I made it happen. That's but, true. 
whether or not you do that in such a way that other people want to read it is maybe not something that everybody can do. That is true. Um, I, I did think it was interesting his his analogy, I guess, or his example of people climbing Mount Everest and like, I just walked, you know, like. I wonder if people feel like that. They get <laughs> to the top so. of Everest and they're like, I just walked up there. It was no big deal as they're like ah. passing, you know, the the remains of people who didn't make it. I don't know. I, right. Because Everest is a giant graveyard. Yeah. I mean, not to not to make light of things, but basically right. it's and that's I think that that is sort of. He's he's both right and wrong in using those analogies because, yes, you it, a person did just, like, put one foot in front of the other and they finally got to the top of Everest. Woohoo. And, yes, some people can't just, like, put words in front of one another. Um, but when he talks about there not being a voodoo to it, I also agree with that um, because there's, like, some measurable things that you can do in order to get to the point where you can maybe try tackling Mount Everest. Like, you don't try tackling Mount Everest as, like, some goofball just standing at the bottom going, I can get up there and then do it. Like, no, that's part of the reason why the top of Everest is a giant graveyard. Um, you know, there there's training that you have to do. There's knowledge that you have to have. There's people that you have to get to help you. Uh, there's equipment that you need to buy and know how to use correctly in order to not die, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the same, but not with the same dire consequences right. uh, with writing where, yeah, anybody can like put some words one after another until they form some sentences and some paragraphs and then they have a book. But you have to know how to do that in a way that accomplishes what you want your reader to get out of what you're putting down. And that is something that not everybody knows how to do, but I do think that it's something that many people can train themselves to do. Yeah, yeah. And see episode four where we talk about practice or really a lot of the episodes we've had so far have been a lot of guests saying, well, I just practiced until I got it right or I practiced until I could do it or or whatever. And uh, this this is no different. And um, I know that Dan put a lot of work into it. I mean, obviously he wrote a novel, but he also had people read it before he even submitted it. And um, that's not a step I think that a lot of a lot of people go through. I don't know. Uh, I would imagine the ratio of published authors who have people actually beta read their stuff is higher than unpublished authors who just send stuff out. But uh he did. He put an immense amount of work into into writing this and, and and getting it out there. Yeah. And one of the other things that that he talked about was how talent necessarily doesn't one hundred percent come into it. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm gonna I'm gonna let him talk about that first before I comment on it. My friend Mike Cole is a writer is very fond of dismissing the idea of talent. I'm sure I feel that there are probably some people who maybe excel more in one place or another, maybe just have some sort of innate quality. But talent alone is not enough to get you there. You got to work your butt off to get there. So for me, some of it is minimizing in the sense that it's like, yeah, I, I guess it's an achievement and, I, and I've managed to do this, which is great. But it was also just that I, I worked hard at it. And, you know, the fact that I did that is anybody who wanted to work similarly hard could pull off the same thing. So I, I don't, it is hard. Like you, like you said, you feel like maybe you should feel a sense of accomplishment, but at the same time, it's hard when you have all of the like hindsight, looking back and all the stuff that you did to get there. And it's like, yeah, I, I worked my butt off. Of course I did this. There is a debate that artists uh, across many disciplines have about whether or not talent is innate or if you don't have any talent for a thing, whether or not you can have any kind of success at art. And I think that the the ratio of people who feel like talent is super important to it not being super important is different in each artistic discipline. Uh, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before that I am um, I was trained in college to be a singer, uh, opera singer, as a matter of fact. I, you know, you could say I was born with the talent for having a beautiful voice or whatnot. And part of me going to college for this, and I also did this um, throughout middle school and high school, was was training my voice to do the things that I wanted to do. But I started from a place of people saying, oh, you have a nice voice. Um, 
does everybody have a nice voice? There are some people who will tell you no. Some people will be like, Mm-mm, nobody want to listen to old Jennifer over there. She sounds terrible even when she's just talking. <laughs> Poor Jennifer. Jennifer. <laughs> right? Um, and, and so, you know, with, with singing, there is more of a sense of first you got to be somebody who has a voice that people would want to listen to and then you train that voice. But say I also learned to play the clarinet as a kid and I didn't continue with it, but I was pretty good at the clarinet. Like I wasn't like super great, but I also didn't work as hard at becoming better at the clarinet as I did at singing. Um, which is why once I went off to college, I went off to study vocal music as opposed to instrumental music. Um, but there was nothing particularly special about my fingers or my my embouchure that made me <laughs> like, you know, destined to be a clarinet player or not. And and so with that, you know, the the talent more comes out in what you do with the clarinet, what, what's in your mind. And that is, I think, less... I, 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 there's, there's some natural sort of inclination to a thing um, that, that's going to be there, like, in your mind, in your, in your soul, if you, if you want to put it that way. But in order to bring it out correctly, in order to bring it out in a way that anybody's going to want to listen to beyond just your parents at that horrible concert that they make you go to every year, um, <laughs> is... You know, that takes practice, that takes honing. To this day, I can sing something and people will say, oh, you're such a beautiful, that's such a beautiful voice you have. You're such a great singer. I haven't practiced singing in forever, but I still have a nice voice. But if I picked up a clarinet today, nobody would want to listen to that, you know? <laughs> so it it just, it really depends. It's It's the same way with dance. You know, there are some things that are going on in dance that some of it is the body type that you already have and some of it is the way that you hone it with art. You know, I, I say often, I'm not an artist. You know, I try to draw some stuff. It doesn't work out for me. Did I ever really try? No, because right. I didn't care. Um, but some people... Maybe they, yeah, like, look at, uh, look at that guy who draws XKCD. Like that. Randall Monroe. <laughs> Randall Monroe. Like, that's some, that's some stick figures. That's literally yep. some stick figures, folks. But it's what he does with both words and the stick figures that transcends it from just being some guy with some stick figures. You know, there, there's something there beyond just whether or not he has artistic talent. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he really can't do anything beyond stick figures. You know, it's just not in his repertoire. That's okay because what he's doing with them is so interesting. So all of this is to say, I, I've gotten really long-winded on this point, but, but I just, I, like I, it. I, <laughs> I agree that the talent is not necessarily like the thing that makes you successful. Um, but it's also just a lot of stuff that's that's internal to you. Because, I mean, with writing, in a way that I would say is similar to like playing an instrument as opposed to being an instrument yourself, it's what is inside of your head, what is inside of the the bits of you that make you you, that make your writing something more than just I put some words um, one after another on this page and made some paragraphs and then eventually it was a book. And I think that a lot of a lot more people than folks may realize have those things inherently in them, but they don't know how to draw it out. Mm -hmm. And so the people who have talent probably are more naturally inclined to being able to draw it out in such a way that makes people go, oh, I enjoyed reading that sentence. Oh, that story was something. But that's not the end of it. Because when you get to people who have what what other folks like to call natural talent, writers who just like seem to understand many aspects or, or some particular aspects of narrative or character or whatever, they just do it. Like it just comes out of their heads that way. Those writers are actually kind of the most dangerous or in the most danger of not doing 100% well ultimately because since it comes to them so naturally, they don't work on the honing part of it. The mm -hmm. person that I think of the most when I talk about this, I talk about this a lot, is Joss Whedon. Uh. Joss Whedon. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm not going to say really terrible things about Joss Whedon today. 
We have to go to another podcast for that. But okay. I was gonna say the last time you talked <laughs> I mean, about Joss Whedon, things happened. Right. Things like happened. it could be it could be bad. But but with Joss Whedon, he's clearly a very talented writer in some real specific ways. Um and and that's why some of the early seasons of Buffy are just like, whoa, this is amazing. What have you done to me? What have you done to my face? Um, I've read some of his comic work that I, I really liked. Um, I also, Aline's going to laugh again. I also feel the same way about Stephen Moffat, where, <laughs> oh my God, a I have so many yeah, a lot of people I have do so many too. Problems. Yeah, right, I have yeah. so many problems with Stephen Moffat, but I used to really love Stephen Moffat when I was watching Coupling, which was I think his second sitcom uh, that he had on the BBC. Maybe it was his third. Um, and and I loved Coupling. I loved the writing. I loved the 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 dialogue. I loved the structure. He was so good at structure. Like there were so many things I loved. So like both Stephen Moffat and Joss Whedon have like these inherent things that they can do that that they do over and over again well, which is why you can tell that it's like sort of inherent to them because it's like a go-to for them. But for whatever reason, they have not honed these other things or they have not seen themselves as people who need to hone any further than they already are. And so then you have a thing where Joss Whedon is doing the same crap over and over again. And it was break, you know, groundbreaking 20 years ago. It's not so groundbreaking now because it's been 20 years. Get a different shtick, man. You know, uh, watching Coupling, there were so many amazing things about it that it took me watching the the same episodes over and over 30 times before I started to notice some of the cracks in the foundation beyond all the stuff that I really loved. And so that is the danger of just thinking like, well, it's just talent. If it's talent, then that means that I don't have to hone it because I'm already good at this. But when you are talented in some areas, but don't then push yourself to address the things that you're not as good at, to address the the problematic aspects of your work, to address those, you know, the stuff that just doesn't come right out of your head sort of perfect, then you get into situations where you're you're not doing your best. You're not being the best you that you could be. And then uh we have the Avengers Age of Ultron. Mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. Or everything that has been going on with Doctor Who ever since Matt Smith showed up. I'm just saying. Well, so this season, I think, with Bill has been pretty great without, like, being spoilery. But I don't know. I just really like Bill. I think she's played really well. Anyway. Yeah, uh, I agree. But, um, yeah, like, the Avengers, I, I couldn't get past... I couldn't get past uh, Black Widow in the way that she was treated and that her motivation is, you know, an inability to have children. And I just, oh, oh, it bothered me so much. So, so, so much. Right. Um, and, and it was the thing where, again, if he wasn't, if he was better at sort of thinking through all the different levels of what he was trying to do, because I could, once I got over my anger about it, I could sort of see where he was heading with that dialogue, which was just basically her saying, look, like just because of this thing, this Hulk or whatever, it doesn't make you a monster. Just like these things were done to me. It doesn't make me a monster because it's about the choices that I made, but it came out in a whole twisted messed up way because somebody was just like writing dialogue and then heading off to like go play golf or whatever. I don't know if he plays golf. I don't care. But you know, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it wasn't, it wasn't thoughtful. It wasn't thought through. It was just tossed out there because that's what he's good. He's good at that dialogue, tossing it out there. Woo. Mm -hmm. Woo. Yep. No. (laughs) Just like that. Yeah. 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 Um, something else that comes to mind or came to mind as I was talking to Dan was kind of the role of, uh, of privilege in publishing, which I think is, um, something that we should definitely explore like in a dedicated episode because publishing is still very much a, you know, a white cisgender dudes game, especially science fiction. Um, although I gotta say like the Nebula and Hugo nominees, uh, this year were pretty great. Mostly women actually. Is it mostly well, yeah, women? And it, but actually, okay. So this is a thing that I actually, I just read about where people seem to think that, that science fiction 
has been traditionally like this boys club and this white boys club and oh my god these people but really the the best stuff that has been written the stuff that has actually been acknowledged by awards like the nebula awards and sometimes the hugo awards and, and other stuff has has shown that it's it's more equal than you're led to believe by just Is sort it? of being you know, a general science fiction reader. And it's part because so many more books are published by these dudes. And you go to the bookshelves and you're like, there's so many dudes here. What's going mm-hmm. on? Um, but the books that get the attention are, it's it's definitely closer to being equal between men and women. And now lately, people of all genders. I wrote about this a little bit when I was reporting on the Nebula's Last year, two years ago, when it was in Chicago, I wrote a piece for NPR about the awards and how, you know, that year's ballot, like this year's ballot, was very much, there were a lot of women on the ballot, there were a lot of people of color, but then I, I went back into the history of the Nebulas a little bit, and I noticed that it's actually been a very long time since there was a ballot for the Nebulas where it was, you know, all men, or like only one woman or something like that, Um People of color haven't been as well represented mm-hmm. in that balloting process. That's a little bit newer, but in terms of men and women, it it hasn't been that out of balance and whacked uh, always. Yep. So I think you nailed it. It's my perception of it. It does come from like the not necessarily the awards, but like what I go to into a bookstore and I see, or even what I see people talking about on Twitter before I became more involved in kind of like the the book side of Twitter. Um, you know, I would see people people talking about, you know, Scalzi and Neil Gaiman when he falls into the science fiction side of things and uh like Stephen Kingish type stuff. And I didn't even hear about like Nora Jemison, who I talk about every episode because I think she's amazing. But I didn't even hear about her until I read the Hugo nominees last year. I had no idea. And I was like, this is beautiful. This is the best thing. I was like crying at sentences because they were so beautiful. But I I wasn't hearing about that. And now that I'm a little bit more plugged in, I'm hearing about it more. But yeah, I guess I guess that like actual square footage representation is getting to me. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that that is a big problem. It's still a big problem that books by people who aren't white cisgender males do not get as many reviews um, put into as many like roundups of here's all the books that you need to be reading in the month of May. Um, You know, that kind of thing from the mainstream. I think it's really interesting that because the Nebula Awards, which are given by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, which is, you know, voted on by other writers in the genre, um, you can become a member if you are an editor or publisher or somebody else in the industry. But I don't think, I don't think that right now you can actually vote on the Nebula Awards, I think you can nominate things um, that are then put on the ballot depending on nominations. But so it's it is telling that when science fiction and fantasy writers look around and see who has been writing the things that they like the most other than themselves, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're they're picking things like Nora Jemison's work and uh, Alyssa Wong's work and Sam Miller's work and and whatever. Um, and Sam Miller, yes, he's a white man, but he is, he's to gay. Oh no. <laughs> um, but you know, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it is. And, and, and the reason I feel like I can say that is not only because like that is his identity, but like Sam's work and the, the stories that he has been nominated for uh, and won awards for thus far have come from a place of him writing about aspects of being a gay man in America that were formative to him and to the community at large. So, you know, not only is he like a fantastic writer, he's a a very specifically a gay writer and the stories of his that people are saying, this is amazing. This needs to be nominated. This needs to win are stories that come out of that experience of him being a gay man. That is the kind of thing I think that whatever else is going on, voters on the Nebula awards now are, are the ones who are leading the way in making sure that people 
see those types of stories as an accomplishment, as worthy of recognition and awarding, which may be different from what's going on in the pages of the New York Times review section um, or the Hugo Awards, which are voted on by the community at large or, you know, whatever other awards there are and how they choose them. It's I I think that's an important aspect to remember. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, and I did a recorded a podcast about both the Hugo and Nebula nominees recently. And there's a reason we had initially committed to just doing the Nebulas because we felt like the list was more solid than the Hugo list has been at late. And I'm just talking best novel. We didn't do like every nominee because I can't read all that. I would love to, but I can't. And um, anyway, just I, I, I do think that... Um, I don't know if calling it gatekeeping is the right word or that uh, that informed nomination, I guess, is is huge. It's amazing. And um, I hope that as time continues, that that becomes more reflective or more reflected in what we see in stores and what like the general population is talking about, because I feel like people are missing out on a lot of great novels and reading a lot of subpar stuff um, because they're not, they're not seeing this kind of thing, but, and anyway, it, it ties into something that, uh, that Dan and I talked about when I saw him a couple of weeks ago and that we talked about for this podcast was, let me play a clip of Dan talking about some of the things that he would do differently because I think it does tie into this conversation of um, representation in a way, uh, not not completely like we're talking about, but... Yeah, so I first wrote this book when I was started this book when I was 28 or 29. Um, it was not the first novel that I had written to completion. Um, it's certainly the first one that got published, obviously, but I had written two or three before this. And one of the things that, especially because this idea dates back even further than that, this idea dates back to college. And some of these characters are very, have been very consistently in my head since college when I first started writing it. And one of the things that I feel like I have learned a lot about in the past uh, eight to 10 years or just become much more cognizant of is uh, the impact of diversity and inclusion and and featuring stories with people of diverse backgrounds, of diverse qualities, races, gender, all of this, you know, I think has become much more of a, a topic of conversation that should become much more... Um, uh, visible in, in, especially in social media and in the circles that I'm in. I have a lot of friends who talk a lot about diversity issues and, and as such, it's become a big thing that I'm much more aware of than I was eight years ago or so when I was writing this book, I didn't really think about the, you know, having, uh, or making a point of having uh, a diverse cast of characters. A lot of my characters are men in this book. Um, a lot of my characters are probably either of unspecified race or probably some sort of white background, though it is set far enough in the future that I at least think that there is likely to be much more multiculturalism in that era. Um, but certainly I, it's not something that I make a big point of in the, in this first book. And, and again, a lot of that is because it was, it's, I was started to write it eight years ago when I was not thinking about these issues as much and not hearing about these issues as much. And I've, I've, you know, felt like that's something that of all the, the things I would change if I could go back and do this book again, I think I would f try to focus more on having a broader range of characters and experiences in there. And that's something that I, I feel very strongly about and that I want to work towards going forward with each successive book, whether it's in this series or elsewhere, is making sure that I have a broad spectrum of characters so that everybody feels like they can they can relate to somebody or see themselves on the page. I think that's really important. So I was really, this all came about because uh, Dan and I, we'd just finished recording a podcast together in the same room, which is not something that happens very frequently. And I'd handed him my book to sign, uh, which we're actually going to talk about in a little bit because I loved his signing setup. Um, but he was like, so 
for for my next book, I know that I need to do better on this. Do you know of people of like sensitivity readers who can help me figure this stuff out? And I was like, yeah, we can totally do that. And so I wanted to have this conversation with him like in a podcast um, just because I feel like it's a conversation that white authors are not necessarily having, or if they're having it, I'm not hearing about it. Um, so I just wanted like, Hey, do better. <laughs> like Dan's going to do better in the future. We need, we need to do better, uh, with representation. I agree. I agree with all of that. You would not have guessed that I would agree with such a thing. It's shocking. And it's shocking <laughs> that I would be a person who would bring that up too. I know. Shocking. but Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's what I loved is that he was like, I didn't have to say it. I'd read the book. I'd noticed this and I didn't have to say, hey, Dan, he brought it up to me. So I thought that was nice. So we talk about when we talk about writing more representational fiction about how that ties into actual good writing. You know, it's like it is it is better yeah. writing to have your fiction be more representational and inclusive. And it is not good writing when you have horrible stereotypes and caricatures of people who aren't like you or even people who are like you in your book, like that's not good. And so that's, that ties into this thing that we're talking about here about, you know, whether talent or what is, is innate and whatnot, because this is something that, yeah, a lot of authors really do have to work on. And that's no shade on those authors, because especially if you are white, cis male, author, then it's probably not something that you would have had to think about yep. in, you know, inherently because you're from the dominant paradigm. You're from what people consider to be the mainstream default. So it's good that because now he has gone through this whole process, he's written more, but he's also paying attention to the conversations that are happening about literature in this community for him to be like, okay, so that wasn't where I was when I first started writing this, but now that I understand this. And also it's sometimes really good to like go ahead and just like get under your belt a novel that utilizes some of the things that you're more comfortable with dealing with before you then run to tackle the things that are going to be a little bit more difficult for you because writing novels hard enough. Good yeah. Lord. Let me tell you as a person in the middle of it, <laughs> writing a novel is hard enough. Um, and, and sometimes people do like want to go ahead and just like get in and take that challenge. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but I'm also saying that like, sometimes it's totally okay for you to be like, this is my first one that I've completed and gone through the whole process with. And I wasn't thinking about that, you know, 100% the first time I did it. But now that I have gone through that process from now on, Going forward, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that that's like more in the forefront of my mind. Um, because it's doing that kind of work, you know, writing the other, writing representational fiction. It is work and it does take that honing. You know, the reason why there are people who, for whom it seems effortless, is that's because they are often categorized as the other. Mm -hmm. And so they already have that perspective that understanding or, or some of the understandings of the things that we talk about when, when teaching writing the other, they understand them because they've had to live them. But that's, that's not to say that anybody who comes from the marginalized community can like do anything, write any kind of character. Well, there's still some things that, you know, things that aren't your stuff that you have to think about and you may not realize, but the people for whom it seems to come more naturally you know, that talent, those are the people who are affected by it. And that's why they think about it more. Yeah. Um, I think seeing this in action, kind of the, the writing a novel and then writing more representative works later is kind of exemplified in science fiction with the Expanse series, um, which is written by James S.A. Corey, who's actually a Daniel Abraham and Ty Frannick. Um, and their first book was really good. Don't get me wrong. It was really good. But there were literally, it's like this rotating point of view cast. And they were all men. Um, there were women present, but none of them were point of view characters. And I think in the second book, we got some point of view characters. Um, but they were doing things like you know, describing people of color um, while not describing other people. And I always took that as, oh, okay, so you're specifically calling out 
people of color and not like the white people. Um, okay. And as it's gone on, they, I haven't noticed that as much. So they are definitely learning as they go, which I appreciate because it's a great series of books. Um, I, I always kind of as a being in the position of privilege that I am in, I'm always like, no, you, you need to do better on the first try. <laughs> like, um, because I am, you know, I, I'm a woman. I, I have some things that, that make me marginalized in ways that maybe other people aren't, but I am still a cisgender straight white woman. And, uh, and I'm just like, no, I, I don't, I don't have the patience for you <laughs> to do this. Um, so I feel like maybe Tempest, you have a little bit more grace and understanding than I do. And maybe that's because I haven't written a novel and I don't have that. I'm just like, no, you just need to do better. Yeah, it's um, man, when you're writing a novel, everything is terrible and hard. Uh, yeah. Everything. Um, I think it's because well, I I also just sometimes sit back and I'm like, you people need to do better. What's wrong with you? But I often feel more that way about folks who are who have been doing stuff for a long time and have had the opportunity to have people say to them, wait, but no. Um, or, or even just that they have existed in a media landscape in which they have been shown the way to do this and then they don't. And you're like, but wait a minute though, you've had all these really great examples. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, how do you not know how to make television in the 21st century? Right. You're 40. You, you, <laughs> you've been doing this in the same time. world I did. What are you doing? Um, so yeah, it's my sometimes my patience with this is conditional. Yeah. Um and and sometimes it's it's more about sometimes I don't know whether or not people have considered this but have determined that they are not good enough or not in a in a place mm-hmm. of understanding enough to be able to do the thing right because you know, you don't want somebody coming along being like, okay, we're going to like include all these people in our, in our book or in our show. And it's going to be great. I don't know anything about Indian Americans, but, uh, I think that she's going to enjoy making curry. That's what this character is going to be about. (laughs) And like, I don't know any black people, but I think that this character is going to come from the ghetto, uh, and, and be trying to escape that drug life. And I don't know any people from Japan, but I think a katana should be involved. Like no, (laughs) nobody wants that. Nobody wants those things. Um, And so it can be, it can be very useful as an artist to know your, like what you can and can't do and to be able to stay in your lane. I actually wrote about this um, recently uh, in a public post on my Patreon where I was talking about a character whose gender I was going to change. Mm -hmm. And from the beginning of this project, which was a short story, I hate this, it's short stories turning into novels. But um, (laughs) from the beginning, when this character was introduced, I think it it was in the novella version, I have always conceptualized this character, whose name is Hui, as being um, non-binary gender. Uh, There is a... There are five genders in the the world that I have built in this ancient Egyptian setting. And, you know, two of them are cis men and cis women. But then there are um, men who will have, you know, uh, male genitals, but they, they are feminine. And so they're considered, they, they're allowed to do things that women do. And then there are women who are born or people who are born with female genitals, but they consider themselves men. And so like they go and they get to do the things that men do. Um, and then there's like a fifth gender that's even more complicated than that, but I don't get into the fifth gender. So Hui was, um, what, what we call the feminine male. This male genitals but uh lives as a woman and does the things that women do including gets getting to be an engineer that's women's work in my world engineering is women's work so who is an engineer um who is also part of the um the kinswomen the ruling council of again my my world that i've built you could only be a kinswoman if you're a woman but you know who as a feminine male is considered to be a woman to the point where they can join the kinswomen so I, I had all this set up and I was like very excited that I had found like a good place to be able to to bring in some non-cisgender people into my world because I very much wanted to be a world where there were genders that were not cisgender that were accepted in the culture because I wanted to explore how that might work. 
But the more I got into this, the more Hui emerged as an antagonist. And the more I was like, I don't know, is this going to go badly? Because I don't believe that you should never make a, a person from a marginalized identity an antagonist or a villain or whatever. But there, there are ways that I have advised other people to do, to do it so that it's not terrible. Um, and, and it's not like a harmful representation. But the more and more I got into it, the more and more I was like, I don't think that I have the skill or the understanding of gender and, and transgender issues and non-binary gender and, and all these things in order to make this character who is doing these antagonistic things work within the, the plot framework that I have and the character art framework that I have for them. And so I made the decision to to make Hui into a cisgender woman in order to remove some of the problematic things that could be associated with them if I had kept them non-binary gender. Um, and, and basically I just did that because like, I didn't want to do something horribly wrong, but I wasn't sure that I had the chops to do it right. And so it, I, I want to then work toward being able to get it right. So like that in the next book, there will be more people from all five genders in the book who get to be like very important characters that, that get explored. Um, I'm not like saying, well, I'm just, I can't do it. So I'm just going to put that on the shelf forever. But I feel like I can't do it right now. Mm-hmm. I need to work more in order to do it better in the future. And I, you know, I made that choice for me, but I, I do think that's a valid choice for, for any artist, but only if they do make that commitment in their minds to doing it better, to learning what they need to learn so that they can then include characters from different races, different genders, different abilities, whatever, in their work. I think it's totally fine to be like, I don't have the, the, the skills to do it right now, but I'm committed to learning how to build those skills so I can do it later. So I have a question about your universe. Would it be, is it much like we currently are, I don't know, struggling with as a wider society? So where people are assigned male and female at birth and then are uh, made aware as they grow older that they are indeed not the gender they were assigned at birth? Or is it more of a society where babies are born and then they they get to express what they are however is appropriate for them um it's that from from the time of their birth they are considered whatever gender uh matches their genitalia until they get to uh around 7 years old which is the age of reason which is the time at which they are considered to be mature enough to understand whether or not they fit into the gender roles that are assigned to them or not. And then if they are not, if they're like, actually, I feel more comfortable with being, being this gender, they're like, okay, cool. That's fine. Um, but they just basically are waiting for you to be a mature enough. Your brain has matured enough to, to understand that. And that's not to say that if there was a child who was younger than that, who was just like, no, I'm this way, that they would say, no, you're not. You have to wait till you're seven. It's just that usually seven years old is right around the time that that starts being introduced to them as a concept and a choice. Uh, or not, not even necessarily a choice, but like that, that option is open to them if they are that way. And nobody's going to stand in the way of that. Um, and that's one of the things, again, I was trying to explore is a culture that accepts that there are more than two genders and has specified um, roles and ways of being in that culture for those genders so that there is no stigma attached to them. I wanted to, you know, explore what, what that would be like for people who who say you know what my nature that's that's how I put it in the books like my nature is that of a woman um no matter what is going on with your physical body your nature is that of a woman okay fine there's no there's nothing attached to that that would make you feel bad about having the nature of a woman no matter what your body looked like so 
we've gotten a little bit deep. So to, to lighten it a little bit, uh, I wanted Dan to talk about how he currently signs his books because I was absolutely delighted. So we we had this event. We were at WWDC, which is a developer conference in um, California, and we were at like a meetup for Relay FM, which is the podcasting network that we both belong to here, Originality, and uh, Dan does. Uh, clockwise. And so, uh, yeah, he, he has this whole kit. Let me, I'm going to have him tell you about it. I went out in addition to like getting some nifty pens and I don't know much about pens. I'm not a pen person, but I like did some Googling online and found some a nice pen to sign things with. Um, but I also decided, Hey, I'm going to sort of invest in, in merchandising and branding a little bit because this is my first book and, and I really want to just make it an interesting experience and sort of create this whole um, uh, aesthetic around it. So I went out to a designer um, who you may know on Twitter as uh, Forgotten Towel, who does a lot of Relay FM's art. And I asked him if he'd be interested in designing emblems for the two main factions in my book, which is the Commonwealth of Independent Systems and the Illyrican Empire. And he was super excited and designed these fantastic emblems for me to just did really great work. And so I turned them into a couple of things, including uh, stamps. And this actually idea actually came to me from my friend, Adam Rakunis, who's also an author, an excellent sci-fi author. You should go read his books, Windswept and Like a Boss. Um, and he had a stamp that he had made of sort of the, um, one of his the major elements in his book is a labor union and he had a stamp made of sort of the insignia for the labor union and i thought that was super cool and he would stamp books when he signed them so i was like well i'll (laughs) in my need to one up adam i will make two stamps so i made stamps of both of those emblems and i uh, got them in red and blue which are sort of the uh, related colors for those and i have taken to stamping the books as i sign them um and you know people i'm sure people willing people don't have to have their books stamped but i you know i have been doing it by default unless they ask me not to um and i also have had some stickers made and i've been sending those out as well um to people who cannot get to a book signing i have uh, book plates with the designs on them that i can sign and stickers that i send out etc but i really i like doing the stamps and people react very positively to them so i feel like it was just a really fun thing to do for me uh and it's a very tangible thing in a way that you don't necessarily uh get with a lot of other you make with books you know even though books are physical tangible objects like having a an, 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 a graphical element to them i think is just is really powerful it's the same reason people really like great cover art it's like it, it gives you uh a picture in your head and so i love being able to stamp the books and add that extra dimension to it for people who enjoy that and it was it's just super fun to have parts of my world come alive in that way and become real things that you can see on a page so I'm going to put a picture both of my signed copy of uh, the Cal- Caledonian Gambit and uh, a picture of Dan signing it because he's just got like, I thought that he would just like sign it. But no, he like he takes the book and then he gets his bag and then he gets a stamp and he gets another stamp and then he applies the stamp to a page and applies the stamp to a page and he signs it. And I was like, holy moly. So it is... I don't know, the most memorable book signing I have ever been to uh, that didn't have, I guess, an attached reading. Uh, So it was a lot of fun and it makes me smile. Every time I look at the book, uh, I'm like, yeah, this is super cute. It's super fun. Yeah, it's it's always nice when there's like that extra dimension of of stuff um, that authors do just to sign books. I know that I was talking to Ken Liu about this at one point and he has a a stamp as well that that again like goes with something in his world and then the queen of this i still say i will always say is alethea contes who is a ya romance and children's book author and if you ever have a chance first of all if you ever see alethea at a thing she's already like this magical mystical glitterfield being of amazingness and you're just like what's happening how can she be is she real what's going on and then when she signs books like there's all this beautiful calligraphy and and swooping swirlingnesses that go along with the her swooping swirling gorgeousness and wow. and it's just yeah it's like a really and and that's the thing is like when Alethea signs your book you feel like Alethea 
is is putting herself into that signature as much as she put herself in that book. But it's also like for you. And so you're not going to forget that. You're not going to forget the day that you met the Princess Alethea. You're not. Nice. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. And it's one of those ways that, you know, as an author, you can connect to the people that you are signing the book for, but also like bring a little bit of the book outside into the real world. You know, I think he's right where, you know, people like that, having that sort of tangible aspect of the things that they're reading that are only occurring in their imagination there. And the stamp does that. And, and, a you know, something special from the author's signature does that. But in one point he talked about, which we didn't play was how, you know, he's doing this because, you know, He's signing, he's maybe signed 50 books, I think he said, up until yeah. this point. You know, he's not like in a line of like a million thousand people. But at the same time, even people who have lines of a million thousand people still sometimes find ways to be able to not only personalize it, but like make the signature something special or just even make the the encounter special. I mean, Neil Gaiman, people, 10,000 million people will come to a Neil Gaiman signing, right? Like. And, and you'll be there, right, for the rest of your freaking life. Yep. Trying to get I'm something signed there. by Neil Gaiman. I'm still there. <laughs> right. But Neil Gaiman is not, like, rushing you through like it's some sort of cattle call. Neil Gaiman will will talk to you, will look mm-hmm. you in the face, will say something nice. You know, he'll respond to the, you know, 99% of the people who come there and, like, fall down from fangirling and whatever it is <laughs> like but he's not he's taking time because he understands I think more than a lot of authors how important it is for him to basically just acknowledge the fact that you are you're so excited enough about his work to actually come see him you know no matter you know he's gotten really big mm-hmm. over the course of his career but that's not something I think he's forgotten that how special that is yeah I um so he wrote The Ocean at the End of the Lane several and published it several years ago. And it was his last signing book tour. Um, he, he's done like readings and small like VIP gatherings since then. I know this because I have gone to those things, not as a VIP. But um, so but for The Ocean at the End of the Lane, I went to this reading and signing that he did. And I actually had written him a letter because um, I don't know if I can tell the story without crying. We'll see what happens. Um, he... The, the year before that, several months before that even, um, he partnered with BlackBerry, actually, and wrote a, a, a short story for every month of the year. And it was, I think, uh, A Calendar of Tales is what it was called. Um, I don't know if it's even online anymore. I'll see if I can find it. But one of them was... Uh, touching to me, um, because I had recently lost a friend to cancer and, um, I can't say this without crying. Oh my God. Um, and so I'd lost this very good friend to cancer and there was a story in this that really, really resonated with me. So I wrote him a letter because I knew the signing would be busy and I I didn't know what it would be like if there would be a chance to talk. And so I handed him the letter and he read the letter while I was standing there. And I was like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but it was, and he was getting up and giving fans hugs. And um, it was it was a very personal experience. And I really think that plays into him being one of my favorite authors. Like, it's not just that uh, that he is a good writer. He is, he is a very good writer. He has very uh, interesting, weird ideas. But I think that experience is a huge part of it, is just that, that he treated me so kindly and treated me like it was important when I was in a line with a thousand other people. Um, so I don't know if you're an author, find a way to make those connections. If you do signings, no matter how big you get, I think, because then you're going to have people like me who are like, yeah, that was really special. So I I think it matters. I really do. Yeah, I agree. And, and then also you have to, as an author, figure out what your stamp is going to be. Ha ha ha. I've made it a rule. I've made it a rule. No, I, I have to say, I really love the author stamp thing because um, I, just for a lot of reasons, but it's one of the things where, you know, you put a stamp in a book and and it's like fight the power or whatever. It's something that goes along with your book, but <laughs> but it just, it's like another thing that just adds to the specialness of like having yeah. an author signature because I feel like getting an author signature on a book, like something should be special about it other than the fact that the author put their pen on it. 
Yep. You know, like I've never understood the, he just put his name in it. Like who cares? Like, right. what does that mean for anybody? It means he touched it. Shut up. <laughs> right. I have these arguments all the time. So. <laughs> Tempest arguing? Look, and, and I, I often will make authors do something hilariously special. And if they're just like trying to just sign things like, um, I, I once, so I'm, I'm friends with Justine Labellassier and Scott Westerfeld. They're both amazing authors in their own Mm -hmm. right. They also happen to be married, but like, don't just put them together because they're married because both equally awesome in different ways. Um, but at one point they both had a book come out around the same time and so they were on book tour together and they were at a signing event with them and a couple of other authors so I made Justine sign Scott's book and I made Scott (laughs) sign Justine's book and so like that was my specialness that I had of these two books because you know it's not just somebody's name in a book it's it there's a story that goes with it there's a beautiful tale that's what I feel like that's what signing should be about I agree rather than just like he put his pen on that paper and he wrote his name like "Mm, whatever Right. Yep. Totally agree. Well, I will let Dan tell you where you can find him and his stuff. I'm everywhere on the internet. You can find me everywhere you want to be. Like, is that Visa? American Express? I don't remember. Anyways, I'm at D Morin on Twitter, D M O R E N. Also on Instagram at that name. Uh, my website is dmorin.com. Pretty much anywhere you can find me is dmorin. I also write for sixcolors.com. I write a weekly column at macworld.com. And of course, my book, The Caledonian Gambit, is available on Amazon and in fine bookstores, hopefully near you. I will, of course, have links to all of that stuff in the show notes. Uh, I'm so excited for Dan. I loved this book. I'm excited for the next book. Um, knock on wood, go buy it so there can be a next book, please. By all the things. By all the things. Tempest and I will cost you money through the course of this podcast because we are going to talk about amazing things. Anyway, um, so I think that's all for now. Remember that we have kind of, if you want to join the Bullet Journal challenge um, on Twitter or Instagram, uh, you can hashtag that. Is that a word? Is that a thing? Like you can hashtag that. No. I, uh, <laughs> you can, maybe, no, I it's know. not. It can't be. You can you can engage the hashtagery. <laughs> you can search for or use the hashtag Bujo with a lean, which is kind of a silly uh, thing to say, but it is B U J O with a lean. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Aline. You can find Tempest on Twitter at Tiny Tempest. You can find the show's account at Originality FM, uh, and you can find the show notes to the show at uh, relay.fm slash originality slash six, I believe, um, or in your podcast app of choice. I think I think that's all the things. Yeah. And for yeah. those of you out there who've been asking, but will your podcast be on this or that thing other than iTunes and Google Play? We're working on it. We will we will ask the technical people to put the podcast everywhere you want to be. That's also for American Express. <laughs> Just from American Express. Yeah, I don't um there's kind of a uh, cost benefit analysis that goes into play for for putting it in other places but um you know if you have a favorite podcast app uh, it probably pulls from iTunes maybe Google Play but uh you can you can find us in a lot of places as it is um so i think that's all i've i've entered the rambling part of the show so i guess it's time to wrap up thank you so much for listening thank you you guys <laughs> make everything possible You do. If you have a suggestion for a non-rambly closing, feel free to let us know, um, because I don't think it's something I'm actually going to (laughs) write. It's in my bullet journal. (laughs) That's true. All right. Well, until next time, stay original. Something. Ugh, awful. Awful.